Good morning. Can you guys all hear me in the back there? Yeah? Okay, great. Um, really quick before we get started here, I'm going to ask everyone to remember to switch off their cell phones. And then also for today's talk, we have a handout. And it looks like most of you have one. But if you don't, they're right on the chair um, by the door, or there's a couple on a chair right up front here. So you can go ahead and pick one of those up. <clears throat> and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Permission to engage with the strange blankness of the page is a struggle that all writers face fully. We often ask ourselves how we might make ourselves brave, how we might create the very courage that it takes to get away with utter recklessness and also disruption. We ask how we might embrace creative constraints as methods of engaging with chaos, change, chance, and the chase of wilderness that leads to thrilling turns in language. And at today's 11th hour presentation, Dara Wire will discuss chance and erasure, atten attention to danger, and the ways in which we might, as writers, take responsibility for the necessary bewilderment of writing. Dara Wire is the author of numerous collections of poetry, most recently her selected poems, which were published by Wave in 2009. And other recent entitles include Remnants of Hannah, Reverse Rapture, Head on a Pond, and Voyages in English. Her poetry has been supported by fellowships from the Guggenheim, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Massachusetts Cultural Council. She teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and co-directs also the Juniper Initiative for Literary Arts and Action. We're so lucky to have her here on our very first day of the 11th hour lectures. And so please join me in welcoming Dara Weir. What do I do? You can clip it. Here, I'll clip it. Here, let me go get my Okay, phone. go ahead. And you can just leave it up here or carry it around if you want to walk around at all. Okay. And um, actually, let's go on this side. We'll just test it. And if you need help, just uh, If I need know. help, I'll just, ask for help. Yeah, yeah great. <laughs> okay. So, this is working for you back there? And okay, so if you, if I start to drift away and you're back there, let me know because I want to talk to you. Okay, so um, thank you for being here, and um, I know that you you've all done something by being here that um, already marks you as people who are either very courageous and brave, or maybe sometimes a little foolish. <laughs> who knows? You know, no, it's a it's a great mix of those kind of things. And um, this piece I'm going to read to you is um, going to ask you to be participating in writing down a few things. So the piece of paper that I asked you to take from the chairs around you has a piece of writing on the front of it that while I'm talking to you, you should be crossing out words to make a new piece of writing out of what you see in front of you. So that's a process called erasure. Lots of poets and some fiction writers practice it. It's also a great way to pass the time when you're in a lecture or a meeting and you have paper in front of you and you need something to do. So um, I know that's where I first learned it, was uh, sitting in lectures I wasn't very interested in and with handouts that I could then change into something that I thought I'm finding the secret message in here. 
you know. So cross out almost everything or cross out very little, but try to play with it as, as we go, okay? And then the other thing that I'll be asking you to do is on the back, on the reverse of that page, every now and then I'm going to ask you to write down something. And I'd like you to do that writing on the back of that page. And this is a laboratory and an experiment, as it almost always is when you're talking about writing. So just um, try to be uh, reckless and just don't care <laughs> about what you write down a little bit, okay? So hello, everybody. Thanks for being here, and thanks to Carol and her associates for inviting me to visit the 11th hour. All right, a famous surrealist saying goes along the lines of this. Beauty is the chance meeting on an operating table of a sewing machine and an umbrella. So let that be an image for you to think about a little bit. Um, the writer who wrote that died before anyone else noticed or cared for his writing. He was 24 when he broke these surly bonds and left his body behind. That was amazing to get to say that. Breaking the surly bonds. What's that from? I don't know. I know I read it somewhere, though. Uh, later, the French, French, Frenchman poet and manifesto writer André Breton and many others did, do, and will revere this young writer, L'Autremont, when they first read his first of two books. And this book was called Malador, and in it they all found a passage that they thought was profound and instructive and something that they should all follow. The passage went as beautiful as blank, as beautiful as blank as beautiful as the fortuitous encounter upon a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella. So it's a template for you or an outline where you can go as beautiful as, as beautiful as, and that generates a, a place to put things. You know, that's what you're doing when you're trying to write almost always, is build a place in which you can put things you want to save or keep or observe or examine. You know, you make yourself a cabinet of, of wonder or you make yourself a kind of a place where you're free to imagine or record things that you have experienced in, where, in a place that uh, does the kind of justice to them that you hope happens. So that's what this is partly about. A, a phrase like as beautiful as is a tiny example of one of those places that you can make in a piece of writing. You can begin a good poem or a good story or a good piece of prose with this kind of action, as beautiful as, and take it from there. So why don't you do this right now? Write one, as beautiful as. And give yourself about 30 seconds. Okay, so we got an as beautiful as. That's good. So <laughs> this same character 
Andre Breton, who I've been talking about, also like to talk about something he called objective chance. Objective chance, the thing discovered by luck, like a found object, like a life that's been given to you because you had it or your family had it or circumstances gave it to you, but you did not actively choose it. That's a found object just as much as something you find on the street that you think is interesting and you walk back and look at it and take it home and make something out of it. The thing discovered by luck, like a found object, it is to be run across in the outside world an answer to a question you are not aware of having. You can treat this answer, and an answer can be anything. A chair on the side of the road can be an answer. A fragment of a butterfly's wing in the backhand corner of a broken aquarium behind a 7-Eleven can be an answer. A red hat hanging in a tree can be an answer. The tip of your nose can be an answer. The unidentifiable noise of a bird from somewhere you can't see can be an answer. An umbrella next to a sewing machine on a dissecting table can be an answer. You are now in the position to make up any question you like. What are some of the questions you think you are always liking to ask? Take a minute right now and on the back of that page write a question or a couple of questions that you think you want to see answered. Not necessarily directly, maybe indirectly, but just write some questions. They can be one word. They can be anything. So take a, take a second and do that. Question? Anything you like. Any question that you want to pose to yourself or a friend or the world or the universe, anything. Any kind of question. What kind of question was a good question? That was okay. It worked. All right. Um, so I will try to take things one at a time, but this is always challenging. One's brain has a way of making associations with abandon. And while one thing always leads to another, one can't always be sure who's steering the car. Chance. Chance we've already addressed, or actually we've let the hearsay of one surrealist quote for us. We'll get back to chance later. Now we're talking about risk. We will be risking forgetting to remember to get back to chance. You're all here because you're contemplating the risks and chances associated with writing. Some of the risks are obvious. You risk making a fool of yourself. You risk your family's denial or disapproval, or worst of all, you risk somebody's ridicule, and most of all, you risk doubting yourself. 
Already you are heroes. Already you are reckless people. You risk failure, you risk defeat, you risk sticking your neck out, you risk exposing your soul. You're brave or you're clueless or you're some of both or you don't care or you haven't thought about the risks or all of the risks. For the presumed rewards often disguise the risks. The rewards, what rewards? Ignition of your brain's very being, inflammation of one's imagination, agitation of one's very identity and soul. There is so much to risk, some of it good, some of it pretty scary stuff. You can risk exposure, you can risk sounding ridiculous, you can risk sounding imperious, you can risk being fastidious, you can risk too much or too little. You can risk disliking the things you make. You can risk realizing you are often wrong. You can risk seeing that someone else has already risked it. Now, you take a couple of minutes again and write rapidly down on that page what you think can be risked. Just words. All right, and you risk surprising yourself, having a thought one didn't know one could be having, having a thought generated by words, generated by combining words, by linking sonic sound syllables, surprising oneself with one's brain's ability to combine what you never thought to combine. Now take another second and write down two words together that you've never put together before. Two, wor two words that you haven't put together before. This is all pretty easy, I think. So what happens eventually when you keep combining the words that you haven't combined before, and in a way every sentence you write is something like a combination of things like that, um, you think to yourself, I'll never get away with that. Think again. It might be exactly just that feeling that you'll never get away with something that ought to alert you to the fact that you may have stumbled upon something amazing. You know, so this feeling also presents an opportunity for reflection. You can ask yourself what's making you think you have stumbled upon something that might not be able, that you might not be able to get away with. Is it that you've crossed some line you've never crossed before? Aside, is it an emotional line, a linguistic line? 
Is it a dotted line or a line delineated by a canyon sheer 10,000 foot drop off? Is it that you're afraid someone whose opinion you value will judge you mistaken? Aside, here is where you begin to be a good judge of character. This is a good thing, your character and anyone else's character. Is it that you've told yourself before never to do this? Now take a couple of minutes to write something you would never let yourself write before. Just do it. Do it as quickly as possible. So is this sometimes something that you've told yourself before never to do? Is it that you've been told many times not to do something? Now, aside, here is where every writer worth her salt will want to do to get away with doing exactly what she's been told not to do. It's impossible to be told to do something and not want to rebel against it as a writer. Your imagination is always going, but what if, what if, what if? And you have to let that be a very strong part of your work as a writer because you need to have those alter alternative possible avenues for discovering your material and discovering what you really care about. So um, is it that you've been warned that this is something that's just not done? Aside, here is where you imagine and plot and scheme. Is it that you've seen someone else criticized for exactly what this is you are doing? Is it that you've harshly judged someone for doing exactly what this is that you are doing? What's so scary about doing this? And it is scary to me, or it might be to someone else. If it scares me, it's because I am afraid it reveals something about me that I'd prefer to keep hidden. Aside, don't think ever avoiding the pronoun I will save you from this. It cannot. I love the pronoun I. It's so intimate. It's such a, it's a mask. It's never the way we use, and you write it down, it's no longer the eye you use when we talk to one another. It's a different eye because it's on the page, it's made new by its presence on the page. And sometimes that can be a beautiful thing. It's so great to not be yourself, but speak in the first person. You have to be able to transform that which you are desiring to put out into a public space into something that's not just your private self. You have to become a little bit of a metaphor 
you know, pretty much you have to be willing to a little bit give away your life to some other purpose or place. So you have to have courage. You will have to have courage, a brave heart, a stubborn resilience, and determination. Do you know how many things and people and ideas and circumstances there are out there that will say to you, stop it, stop that writing, stop doing it that way, do something else, do something productive, do something worthwhile, do something that will earn you a living, do something that will earn you a guaranteed living, do something sensible and reasonable and saleable. You need courage to ignore all those things and still take care of yourself and your family. You can't defend yourself against those accusations or judgments. It's impossible and a waste of time to do it, a big waste of time. Don't defend yourself or your writing ever. Aside, it is okay and can be an honorable thing to defend someone else's. So maybe cultivate a real true sense of the significance and beauty of doing what you were doing when you were writing. You have to be a little heedless and headstrong, but you can be shy. You can be headstrong in your brain where that belongs. You can be courageous on the page where that is most lasting. You can be intentionally who you are not on the page. Now we will take a break for a few minutes and I'm gonna tell you a little story and a story about a workshop and laboratory and seminar I ran a couple of years ago at a school in Virginia. I was uh, a visiting poet at a, a university in Virginia and it was a place that prided itself on having both fiction writers and poets in the same workshops and in having any, everybody from freshmen to graduate students all in the same class which made for a great amount of variety and all kinds of exciting possibilities and also a different kind of challenge for somebody who's running the workshop for the, for the people. So I, in order to try to jumpstart everything, said to them, for the writing you're going to do this semester, you're not going to write as yourself. You're going to make up a writer and all your writing for the semester is going to be done by this writer you've made up. And uh, if you're a fiction writer, it can become a poet. If you're a poet, it can become a memoirist. If it's a, you, or you can make up a new kind of fiction writer other than the one you think you are, whatever. So you make up a writer, give them a name, give them a biography, give them a resume, give them experience, give them a style, give them everything that they need. And so the uh, 18 or so writers who were in this group were really excited because it's an amazing moment to go, oh, that's not me. I'm not really doing this. Somebody else is doing this. And um, the, the wonderful thing that happened, and, and that was instructive and in teaching to all of us and made us all really excited about figuring it out eventually, was that some of them made up writers who could write so well <laughs> that they became that writer. <laughs> and uh, some people made up writers who couldn't write at all. This was a almost near disaster for them until they realized they could get rid of, <laughs> get rid of them and make up 
a new writer. But it was amazing how flexible and possible it was for so many of them. They wrote the best things and their favorite things they'd ever written just because they pretended like they weren't writing it. So their self-consciousness went away. Their, their kind, you know, like their sense of responsibility disappeared into a fictional sense of it. They felt very responsible for making their writers do a good job. <laughs> but so their vanity wasn't involved in it particularly directly, you know, because it was somebody else they were doing all this for. So the act of generosity was involved in it too, and the act of protection. You were protecting this writer you made up. And so there were a whole lot of advantages. And you know, that was a um, you know, a fictional exercise of that. But we all do that for real. When I, when I write a poem, I never think I'm writing as me. I'm, I'm writing as, as this, this very different, separate poet who's inhabiting the world of poetry at the time. And that gives me courage and it gives me a lot of room to operate and move and, and be not who I am, which is where I look to both writing and reading is to get out of my brain into some other place. You know, I mean, we all spend all our time with our own brains. So it's great to experience somebody else's either in making it up or in reading something someone else has made up. You know, my, my love of reading from when I was a kid always came from the fact that I felt I was on more intimate terms with the speaker of the work than any human being in the world because I, I was experiencing their brain as it acted through words. And it was a real, real wonderful pleasure to have that happen. So these people had a good experience with their either shedding their new writers' lives or with keeping them and transforming their work into being like, more like this writer they made up. And at the same time, we, we studied a writer who you can, if you're interested in, thinking about this kind of work. Um, there's a, a poet named Fernando Pessoa, P-E-S-S-O-A, and um, he had to make, he made up something like 80 different people to write for him. Think of that, he had 80 different eyes. Did you just write his name on the board? Yeah. Oh, wait. Oh. <laughs> blackboard and go clap the erasers <laughs> later, which was always good to do. Right? So, um, but check him out if you're interested in uh, poetry. He's, one of his, um, they're called heteronyms, is a, a poet named Alberto Campo. And he, he has, his book is called The Shepherd. And the first line in the book is, I am not a shepherd. <laughs> so that's really great, great thing. So, um, so they they were they were reading all that while we were talking about this. So, 
Um, at the same time with this group of people, we, we did something that I'm going to ask you to do, too. We would every week show up with about ten sentences that these writers would write. That you don't, and I'm not going to ask for ten sentences. I'm going to ask for like one or maybe two if you feel quick about it. But the sentence should start out, there should be a name for. That's it. There should be a name for. Do it as fast as you can. Try not to think. <laughs> okay, well, if we, you had all the time in the world and you, could, you kept doing that, you'd be amazed at how many things you found that you could say there should be a name for and that you didn't really know. Um, so uh, keep that in mind when you're using nouns and finding names for things in your writing, you know, that you can maybe sometimes turn them into something that you think there's not such an obvious name for and just write them differently. All right. Well, losing yourself, which you can do in an exercise like that, can feel just fine. Think of how it feels to lose yourself in almost anything. And it's an interesting thought to have, I think, to me, that if you are writing a memoir, you can lose yourself in writing your own memoir. You lose yourself when you're really, really writing. You feel almost as if the writing of what you're writing is all there is. You look up. You wonder how you did that writing. Will you ever be able to do it again? How did you do this time? How did you do it that time? And possibly here's where chance operations open a book. Write down the ninth word in a page's first line of type. Write down the eighth word on the next line. Write down the seventh word on the next line. Write down the sixth word on the next line. And so on until you come to zero. This is a very simple example. You can make up ever more complicated generators of chance combinations of words. Now, why would you do that is the, is the really big question. You know, so, writers aren't always writing what they want to be writing, but they often want to be writing even when their writing is not the most important kind of stuff that they're doing. Because you want to write. It's like writing is a physical sensation. 
and it's an activity of your brain that you, as people who love writing, want to experience even if you don't have access immediately to something that feels significant or important. Sometimes you don't have that, you know, so you write anyway and you write through that until you come upon something that gives you a sense of awe or wonder or surprise or curiosity. Something happens that you was unintended. And so that's why these chance operations are good exercises because when you start combining those words just by routine going seventh, sixth, fifth, but, you know, you, you let numbers take over what you put on the page. Your brain is still making connections among those things, and you're having thoughts about those things. So sometimes they generate something that you didn't know you intended to get to. So that works pretty well. So um, this is a literal way to take yourself out of the equation, at least ostensibly. Eventually, you will determine, you will decide if what you're finding by means of these chance operations are of value to you. You will be determining if these combinations amount to something or amount to anything. You can use up a lot of your imagination making up chance operations and generating actions. And that's a, a place to stop again and think. How much of your imagination do you want to train to make up chance operations? You know, you only have so much brain. <laughs> I, for instance, I, I, here's this, an example of a, a chance operation that a poet uh, told me about uh, a couple months ago. So he locks himself up in his apartment he puts on the album Pink Floyd's The Wall. If you know that, that makes me crazy, like to begin with, okay? Um, and it plays it over and over and over and over and over again for two days, during which time he is writing down words on pieces of paper that just come to him because of the immense immersion and assault of listening to this for two days. Then he takes the words that he wrote down and he cuts them up into little slips of paper so that each word is on a slip of paper. And now comes the good part. And then he sautés them. <laughs> and then he eats them. And then he writes something. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> I mean, you can make up stuff like that till the cows come home, you know. But that doesn't. And and for one writer, that can be the be all and end all of everything they do. But for lots of people, that's not. <laughs> it's like it's a funny thing about it's like eating your words, right? Ha ha. That's very funny. But. Um, <laughs> You know, think about what you can do like that. So, all right. You can allow yourself to do anything, or you can require that you j just do certain things, or you can design something so elaborate that the design will keep you up all night designing it. You can do this for one another or for yourself. 
you can make these up for as long as you want, but then you also have to know that what you're trying to do is have the confidence and skills and experience as writers so that when something that really matters to you comes to you, you are able to deal with it as a writer. You know, writing's really forgiving, and I have known a lot of writers in my life for whom writing is mostly a game of avoiding writing about anything that matters to them and staying away from it and staying away from it. And then something really, really big and bad happens in their lives. And poetry forgives them for treating it like a toy forever and lets them write what they needed to write to save themselves at a time when they needed poetry to do the kind of work that it's not able to do every day. So that's a good thing, that it's forgiving. So now what's significant is what you decide to do with these things you make up. Now you're at least getting a sense that you're no longer in full control of what you are writing. Why would a writer like for this to occur? And here is where agency becomes something to consider. Who is the agent? What is the agent? What does the agent do? What is the agent responsible for? Who or what is accountable now? Some interesting instances of actions that artists can take. So you take, uh, I saw a show of um, photographs in room after room of a little museum up in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And there were photographs of the fronts of houses. Just plain, not trying to be particularly fancy photographs of any kind, but house after house after house after house. Pretty ordinary houses, pretty ordinary kind of uh, skill in photography. But the show was a, was a show of houses in which atrocious, violent acts had been committed. So that's all there was to know. So then you go back and look at all the houses again. And the ver it's just the title and the intention of the show and the photographs that give you everything to do with the, the matter of the artist's intentions in that. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of shocking. And, and many of us will have many different kinds of responses to something like that. And another example of something like that is um, there's a, a book by a, a really great Kansas City writer named Evan S. Connell who wrote a book called Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge, some of you may have heard of great books. Um, he has a book called Diary of a Rapist. There's nothing in the book that ever reveals anything that this person is a rapist, committed an act of rape, okay? But the title changes every word in the book because you got the title first. In the photography exhibit I saw, you got, thing, you got the knowledge of the acts being committed later at the end of the show, so you had to go back. But those are two really obvious examples of what can happen in a very flash of inspiration on an artist's part in putting two things up against each other. Titles are amazing. So um, 
Another example of a photographer again. You know, I ha I'm asking you to erase things on that piece of paper. An erasure is a very popular technique practiced right now in American letters, particularly in poetry. I can't really think of much fiction writing, and it, I guess writing a memoir using erasure would be pretty strange. You'd take your diary that you'd kept for your whole life and you just erase parts of it and see what's left, I guess. But um, it's a very popular technique, partly because you have a page of text, and then all you need to do is kind of find something in there. You know, it's kind of like, who's that guy? Fine, fine Waldo. You know, <laughs> it's like doing some kind of activity like that. And you don't have to think real hard. You just have to make marks and then think about what happened after the marks were made. So this photographer, uh, who I recently found out about, went around the world taking pictures of uh, equestrian statues on which heroes were, you know, are seated on the horses' backs. And he took all pictures from all over the world of men and maybe one woman on horseback in public statue stuff. And he erased all the humans from the f photographs, so only the horses are left. And you can picture that. And the series is called On Vacation, <laughs> which is a good, good title, you know. But it does a great thing. It was an interesting project for him to participate in. Got to travel all over the world, have a purpose. You know, it's always good to have purpose. And, um, and did something that's a little bit thought-provoking, I would say. You know, I don't know how many of them you need to see, but maybe the more and more you see, the more thoughts you have about it. I'm not sure. And I ha I've only seen, like, maybe three examples of the stuff he did, but I thought they were beautiful. And I look, because it's like, it's like they were all raptured, <laughs> which is what we were all thinking about lately. So... Um, and then here's another example of, of a kind of exercise or project that some, an artist gave to his sister. It, the, um, the artist is Marcel Duchamp, and he was a, a great artist of theoretical seriousness and intention. He gave his sister a copy of Euclid's Geometry, and he told her to hang it up outside in her garden for a year and let all of the seasons and weather and time and day work on it and do something to it. And then what she would have after that is the work of art he wanted to give to her. So that's beautiful. I always thought that was a really beautiful story about uh, brotherly, sisterly love and imagination working with nature and accepting the fact of time and nature as being part of the, the whole activity of making art. And so I love, I love that he did that. Um, so I'm going to end by reading you um, a, two, yeah, two of my new poems. They're, these are new poems I wrote in the last, uh, one last week and one last month. And um, they were not generated by chance operations. <laughs> except the chance operations that happen in my mind. And uh, I'm reading you these just for fun. 
This is a way to end things. Um, this one's called Big Belt Buckles. You know what I mean. You know a big belt buckle when you see one. You know what a big belt buckle means. It means there's a demon inside there. It's like a Pennsylvania Dutch barn, hex sign or something. It's like an insignia. It's like a bead with an eye and an eyelid on it. It's like a tarantula dipped in honey. It's like rain. It's like me making a cross over my left breast, a secret sign. Cross that out, Lucy Ives. Donald Barthelme never wore a big belt buckle, though he was from Texas, from where a lot of BBBs originate. And from time immemorial, many who have worn them there in Texas were wearing them on purpose. A demon in capital letters is a demon one can deal with, a demon who says who he is. None of this will be taking to account the authentic ritual's concern with rodeo prizes. Congratulations, all you winners out there in rodeo land. We have loved you. Some women wear big belt buckles, too. Pardon me, women. You know what women mean. A distraction. We are talking about what big belt buckles mean on men. One who sports a big belt buckle is saying something. What? What? That is the question. Do you have the answer? You is non-gender specific. Thus, we love it. We is also good for the same reason. My least favorite pronouns have always been he and she. They are the only ones who delimit unnecessarily often. A scarab beetle's image would make an awesome big belt buckle. Thank you, Wallace Stevens. What else? You name it. One is in charge of everything now. All those big belt buckles have drifted off into infinity or possibly they have evaporated and gone to where all the good big belt buckles go. Yodelay, yodelay, yodelay. Oh, and boo-hoo, boo-hoo to them all. We mean this sincerely. That, oh, thank y'all, that's good. Um, actually, that poem got written because a poet friend of mine said, you could never write a poem that ended with boo-hoo, boo-hoo. <laughs> so maybe I didn't do that great, but I did it. So, and then I'm gonna read you one other one um, that I'm gonna tell a little story about. Um, it's a very short poem. That's why I'm gonna tell a story about it, to make it prolong itself. <laughs> so um, when I first moved to Amherst, Massachusetts, I started going to the farmer's market there about 20-something years ago. And one of the first things that happened to me when I went into the farmer's market was one of the men who was selling flowers said to me, come here, let me show you something. So I'm always ready <laughs> to see what. So he had buckets and buckets of flowers called Cosmos. Some of you know them. They're tall, lanky, ferny little leaves with really beautiful magenta or purple or pink not too many, kind of flimsy, five to seven petals or something like that. And um, they're usually pretty tall and very blousy looking things. But he had buckets and buckets of them. And um, he was smoking a cigarette, which, you know, 20 years ago, 
a lot of people would do. I don't, the farmers don't really smoke cigarettes at the market anymore, not, not in front of the customers. So he said, let me show you something. So he took one of the Cosmos flowers out of the bucket and he held his lit cigarette up under the petal and where the, the glow of the ash touched the petal, a bright green circle came up out of what looked like nowhere. And it was the chlorophyll that's in the plant having a chemical reaction to the heat of the ash and stuff. But it seemed like a miracle, right? And because a total stranger was just saying, let me show you this, it seemed pretty great. You know, it made me love him. <laughs> it was great, you know? And uh, so Cosmos became one of my favorite flowers from then on. And also you could grow them in Amherst, Massachusetts. You couldn't really, you couldn't really grow them in Louisiana where I'm from. They're, they need cooler, cooler weather. So I've been growing Cosmos ever since, sometimes showing people <laughs> the magic of that. And uh, so I wrote a really little poem. It's not about anything I just told you except for the appearance of the Cosmos. This is called Dusty Rabbits in Cosmos Borders. At dusk, they grow ecclesiastical and sarcastic. Though they never say a word, it is their posture that judges us to be the less than serene beings we are. They stare off into something we will always miss. Us, with our big brains and long nerves and red scarves. They write nothing down. What they know is too profound, and they are good and true and beautiful and young. Thank you all.